Amen. All right. So I'm going to ask you to uh, find a Bible, get a Bible. Uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and grab one from uh, the chair in front of you underneath or your phone or whatever. We're going to walk through some passages here um, in Acts 20 um, and 21. But last we uh, saw, we left Paul in, in Ephesus. He was on his third missionary journey. And we, we kind of left him there. Uh, he's only halfway through this third trip. Now, we'll catch up to what he's going to do next, but um, what he's going to do is, is head for Jerusalem. Uh, that's, that's his goal, but he's going to take a long way around to get back to Jerusalem. Um, and as he's doing this, something occurs Okay, on this trip. Uh, he realizes he, it is revealed to him Supernaturally, the Holy Spirit gives him this knowledge that he is going to be imprisoned and likely die. He's going to be persecuted. There's going to be something uh, tragic that's going to happen in the process of him uh, being in Jerusalem. And not only does he know this, but it's, it's clarified through some other prophets, some other Christians. Uh, in fact, it seems like everybody knows that, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to go to jail. Um, and they tell him this, they warn him about this, and uh, they actually try to convince him not to go. They don't want him to go. It's a little bit like uh, the Elijah story, if you remember from uh, the Old Testament, where Elijah is getting ready to be taken up into heaven, and he and Elisha are uh, traveling to the place where God's going to show him, and they, everybody knows that Elijah's going to go to heaven. Uh, he's going to actually go to heaven without dying. He's one of the few people that get to do that. Um, and the other prophets are telling Elisha, uh, do you know that your master is going to go to heaven today, that, that he's going to be taken from you? And he says, yes, don't speak of it. He didn't want to accept that fact. Um, all the Christians, all the leaders were trying to convince Paul not to go to Jerusalem because they did not want to lose him. But Paul is ready. In fact, he says not only in Acts, but in other places in his letters, he's ready to lay his life down. He's ready to die. He's ready to be poured out. He's ready to be killed. He's ready to be martyred, that he, he's ready to lay his life down uh, for the Lord. And so that becomes the framework that, that we see the rest of the missionary trip kind of viewed through is Paul's willingness to die for Christ, Paul's willingness to lay his life down for the Lord. And I'm, I'm just telling you that because that is, in a sense, what the, the Christian life is. Paul helps us to see it, that by example, that he's, he's willing to do this, he's warned he may have a choice not to go to Jerusalem. There's some question about you know, these warnings from the other Christians that maybe Paul had the freedom to go and lay his life down, or to not go and, and do something else and continue on in ministry for a while longer. We don't really know. It doesn't tell us. But Paul says, I'm ready, and this is what the Christian life is, is I am willing to lay my life down for God to use however he wants. And I'm not going to try to control my future, and I'm not going to try to be in charge of, of my expectation for what I think should happen, but God's will be done. And that's one of the things that the Christians say when Paul refuses to give in to their warning, he says, no, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to lay my life down and that's what I'm ready to do and that's what I'm willing to do and that's what I want to do. And they say, well, God's will be done. 
And as we, you know, continue to study the life of Paul and the ministry of Paul and all those things, I, I guess I'm trying to help us to shape, you know, our own walk with the Lord through that lens that is Jesus worthy of your life? I mean, we, we say that. We, we market Christianity to people, and I'm saying that in a very negative, derogatory way, but we, we market Christianity to people like, you know, it, it, your life will be so much better if you're a Christian, and things will be great, and, you know, God has all these wonderful things for you, and, and, and there is some truth to that, okay? But the reality is that Jesus Christ is worthy of your life. He is, he is worthy of whatever it is that you have to, to sacrifice and give to him. He's worthy of that. And we, we oftentimes have ourselves in the, in the picture instead of him. It's not about what he's worthy of, it's what I deserve. And if your perspective is all about what I deserve and what I want and what I expect from God, you're going to have a skewed vision and understanding of, of what this whole thing is about. Because it'll never, ever match up to your expectation, your value, your desire. It'll never work out. You have to have Jesus in the picture, who he is, what he's done for you, what he promises, what his value and vision is for the world and for eternity and how he wants to include you in that and what he asks of each and every one of us is to say I, I get it, I want it and I'm ready to give my life for it I'm ready to lay my life down and say God you use it how you want that's what Christianity really is and anything else that tries to woo you in or sell it to you in some other way that's your best life now? <laughs> I mean, you just got to be careful about that. Because Paul's life, all right, I got to get into this. <laughs> That's the pre-sermon sermon, okay? Um, so catching, catching us up to where Paul is and where he gets to. Um, he was in Ephesus. He leaves there, and, and the, the thing about him leaving there was um, he had been there for two and a half years. He had uh, been so effective in spreading the gospel. So many people had come to Christ that those who were uh, in the business of making idols were terrified that they were going to go out of business because so many people had become Christians that they, they were scared that this whole thing was going to take over, and it did eventually, uh, but it was going to take over and they were going to lose their business. People weren't going to worship demons anymore. They were going to worship God, and they weren't going to be able to make money selling idols, and they cause a riot. The riot gets squashed, and um, the, it all gets you know, dispersed, but Paul leaves that area. He goes to Greece, to the northern part of Greece, goes all the way through Greece, down to uh, Corinth, all the way to the southern tip, and then he goes all the way back up through Greece. It takes a long time for him to do this, a few months, um, but then he ends up in Tros, and we're going to pick up the story there um, in uh, Acts 20, verse 7. Before we jump into this story, uh, let's just uh, bow our hearts for a minute and pray and, and ask God to lead us into uh, his word and his truth. And Father, we thank you. Thank you that you are worthy. 
Lord, that um, you never hesitate to tell us the truth. You, you reveal clearly in your word, through your son, through the power of your spirit, through the witness of the church. You confirm over and over and over that uh, what is it that you want from us, Lord, is our whole life. That you have much more to offer, more than life, more than what we can do with our life, more than what we could imagine for our life. Lord, you have infinitely uh, more to offer than, than what our expectations are for our life, but you ask a step of faith to lay that life down and, and to um, give it to you freely, to offer it to you, for you to use how you want, and to not qualify that with anything other than faith, other than trust, and belief that what you want for us is always going to be better than what we want for ourselves. We thank you for your word that teaches us these things over and over. We thank you for the witness of Paul that showed through his life his willingness to lay that life down and let you use it. And uh, what, a, what a life it was. Not comfortable, not easy, but uh, powerful for your kingdom. And I have to believe that you can do it again. You can do it through anybody, anytime you want. You can use anyone to do anything that you want, Lord. And we pray that we would just be submitted to you, yielded to you, ready for you to use us however you want. And Lord willing, <laughs> you'll continue to do great things for, through your people, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Acts 20, verse 7. Uh, we're, we're back in um, Tros now. And so Tros is like northern part of Turkey. Uh, Paul has been all the way through Greece and all the way back up through Greece. Um, and now he's back in, uh, in Turkey. And it, says that, and it sounds like I just skipped over a bunch of stuff. But the reality is I, I didn't because Acts doesn't tell us really much of anything that happened in that, that whole long month, months and months of journey just as he went through the churches and then there was a plot to take his life when he was going to get on a boat to go from Corinth to uh, Israel. He, he discovered that somebody was going to murder him or throw him overboard or wreck the ship or something. So he says, I'm not going to go that way. I'm going to go by land and it's just going to take him a long time to do that. But it doesn't tell us a whole lot of what happens until we get to this story about Eutychus um, and something that happened uh, when he was preaching. And it says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, the, the Christians there, uh, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were uh, many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Now, I just want you to notice that he preached until midnight, okay? We'll get into that in a minute, but um, it's a long time he's been preaching. There are lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. So it's already been you know, past midnight, and he's continuing to preach longer. Um, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story, was taken up dead. 
But Paul went down and bent over him, taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So let's just back it up here a step. It says, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, uh, a couple things that you notice here is that the first day of the week is Sunday, and the church always gathered on Sunday. It was the Lord's Day. Um, and and I'm, this is so like obvious and tedious. I don't even know if I should mention it. But just for clarity's sake, uh, the Sabbath is Saturday. The Jewish Sabbath is Saturday, not Sunday. Just in case people get their, their wording wrong on this. The Christian people uh, were generally in the first century, a lot of Jewish people, they would worship on Saturday and then they would gather on the Lord's Day on Sunday because it was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And they celebrated that and they, from day one, from the first time that Jesus you know, appeared to the disciples on Sunday, they were gathering together and glorifying Jesus that he's, he's alive. And from that point forward, they always worshiped on Sunday. It was the Lord's Day, but it's not the Sabbath, okay? And in the first century, um, Sunday was a work day. It was a day that everybody went to work and, and did their normal thing. Um, and so the church, in order to worship together on Sunday, they would have to worship at night. And so they would gather together for dinner a lot of times. And so it says they were breaking bread together. They were having dinner and uh, it's Sunday night, and Paul is preaching until midnight. So I don't know what time most people eat dinner. What time do you eat dinner? Like six? I mean, this is, you know, northern Turkey. They're in kind of a, a Mediterranean type of a culture. Maybe they eat dinner at seven, maybe eight o'clock. I don't know. But, I mean, you just think about Paul is preaching until midnight. They've been together at this point for four, five, six, seven, eight hours and he's preaching on and on and on. And it says after midnight, he continued to, to preach longer. And what I'm getting at is, you guys don't know what long sermons really are. <laughs> like, I know you think, like, we're just, man, he's preaching for 40 minutes. But, I mean, it hasn't been 40 minutes yet. It feels like it. But the thing is that he was just going on and on and on. And we have no idea what he's talking about. It doesn't ever tell us what he's preaching. But this guy, Eutychus, it's just a funny story. It's a morbidly funny story, but it's a funny story. His name, Eutychus, means lucky one. That's what his name means. And Paul's preaching, and they're in an upper room. It, maybe it's stuffy. They got candles going. Maybe the fumes are kind of getting to people. And so Eutychus goes. He's a younger guy. He's probably late teens, early 20s, something like that. And he goes to the window to get a little air, maybe to wake up a little bit. And he just falls dead asleep. <laughs> and then and he falls dead. <laughs> he, from the third story window out, and he breaks his neck or whatever happens, he dies. And so... Paul says, okay, I'm going to pause my sermon, <laughs> go down. They gather this kid up. Paul, as an apostle, raises him from the dead, heals him, and then continues his sermon until daybreak. Okay, so they've already been together for hours and hours and hours and hours, and he's going to preach until the sun comes up. And here's the, the funny and ironic thing is that his name means lucky one. Why he's lucky is because... Eutychus could have fallen asleep during any boring sermon 
in his life and fallen out of the window and died. He was lucky because Paul was there, and as an apostle, he had the power and the authority to raise him from the dead. Spurgeon, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, English uh, pastor from the 1800s, but he said that you have to be careful because um, if you fall asleep in your chair and fall out and break your neck, there's no apostle here to raise you from the dead. So it was fortunate, but here's the the thing with Paul, and I want to get to a serious issue here. Paul raising this young kid, this teenager from the dead, uh, was not a final miracle, but it was a confirmation, it was a stamp, it was a validation of his apostolic power and authority and that God was with him and that God was working through him and that he, he really was a, a, on equal par with any other apostle of his day. And why that's important is because as you read through Paul's story in Acts and as you see Paul recount some things in other letters that, he, that we don't have any details in the book of Acts, He talks about being persecuted, being in trials, being in trouble, being uh, uh, pursued from one place to the next, being hungry and naked and being homeless and shipwrecked and all kinds of things that we don't even see in, in the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us some of those stories, not all of them. And so Paul's life from the time that he encountered Christ until even this point right here, we see that he is just pursued and troubled and under turmoil one day to the next to the next without almost a moment's rest. And what happened was, in some people's minds, Paul, because of all the trouble that he found himself in constantly, they thought he was a lesser apostle. There were a lot of people in Paul's day that thought, if God really loved you and and God really had a stamp of approval on your ministry, you wouldn't be going through all the pain and trouble that you've been going through. It was a little bit of a a question mark that people had on Paul's authority and and Paul's godliness and, and Paul's call on his life. And why I say that is because what we learn from Paul, from his ministry, from his apostolic authority, is that whether or not your life is comfortable or troubled is not God's determination of how much he loves you. Do you know that? And in the world today, in Christianity as we've inherited it today, I think, to some degree, has a perspective. And maybe it's just this entitled culture in, in the sense that we live in, that we think that blessed people, you know, people that God loves, don't have health issues, and they don't have financial issues, and they don't have marital issues, and they don't have issues with their kids, and they don't have issues with their jobs, and they don't have problems, they're not persecuted, that, you know, if you're really blessed by God, then he'll spare you from any trouble or pain or or difficulty in your life. And when you read scripture, what you find is that is not true. God loves you just as much as if you're in trouble or if you're comfortable. And if you're comfortable and and things are going great, then we're not trying to say that you shouldn't be comfortable or that you should feel guilty about that. Praise the Lord 
for your situation. If, if you have enough money and your health is good and all your, you know, you have peace all around you, great. Praise the Lord for that. If you have trouble, if there's an issue in your family, if there's a health issue, if there's pain in your life, God still loves you. Okay? What you do with your situation is now up to you. Will you praise God when things are good? I hope so. Will you praise God when things aren't so good? That's your testimony. That's how you show the world that it's not about the station that I'm in in my life. It's about who God is. Okay? And so Paul is proving this over and over and over that he's going he's gonna to continue to go through pain and turmoil and trouble until the very end. And yet he knew that God loved him and he was comfortable with his relationship with the Lord and he was confident that God loved him no matter what. So it continues on and he leaves them and he goes uh, to, uh, well, what's he going to do? He's going to basically leapfrog down the coast um, and he's going to sail from one city to the next so that he can get to Jerusalem by uh, Pentecost. Now, in order to do that, he's going to skip over Ephesus and he's going to go to Miletus. What, what that means is he spent so much time in Ephesus that uh, he didn't want to go there and get bogged down with all the people that he administered to. He knew it might take weeks or even months to try to say goodbye to everybody. So he gathered everybody together about 30 miles away in the next town in Miletus, and uh, he gives them a message. Now, here's the thing. is As we continue on, there is uh, something very unique about what he says to these people. Um, and I, I asked the uh, earlier crowd this, and uh, it was interesting to, to kind of get their response. Out of all the messages in the book of Acts, okay, there are about 24 um, sermons or messages or speeches in the book of Acts. Um, how many of them were given to Christian people? That, how many would you say or think? 24 messages in the book of Acts. How many were messages given to Christian people? And the answer is, anybody? 24. <laughs> you're smarter than you look. No, you're, <laughs> no I, uh, you just made me think about that. Of course, they're all for Christian people because it's, it's God's word for us. But <laughs> you just threw me off. <laughs> okay. So what, what's really happening in the book of Acts is that out of all those messages given by Peter or Paul or, or James or, or whoever, uh, Stephen, um, they are all given to non-believing people. They are the gospel to convince. They are the message of who Jesus is to people who don't yet believe in Jesus, okay, except for this one. Now, obviously, you're right. They're all for Christian people now, but the original audience was, you know, uh, Jewish people who didn't believe in Jesus, uh, uh, Gentile people who didn't believe in Jesus, uh, Gentile rulers who didn't believe in Jesus, philosophers who didn't believe in Jesus. They were all gospel messages to people who didn't believe except for this one message. Okay, this is the only message in the book of Acts from an apostle, from anyone to a group of believers that we actually have the message. We have stories about Paul preaching or teaching Christian people, but we have no account of what he actually said except for this one. 
So it makes it unique in the book of Acts, which if it's unique, then we'll say it's probably important. So I want to just go through some of these teachings because I think that we're going to learn something here uh, about what we need to know. So it says, uh, Paul <clears throat> is talking to um, the church, the leaders. Let's pick it up in, in chapter 20, verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Okay, so he's basically saying in his message to Christian people, look at my life, inspect it, put it under the magnifying glass and see uh, exactly how I lived, what I did and, and how I taught, how I preached um, and the things that were evident in my life. Like I didn't hide anything. He said in verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. Here's an interesting thought. Um, I heard this the other day, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I don't know if that's true. But uh, somebody said, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm in a church where, you know, the, the church is really humble about our position and, and uh, who we are and that kind of thing. And, and then the guy said, well, if that's interesting that you say that you're humble because uh, you seem to be pretty aware of it. And the guy said, huh. Now, and I heard that, and I'm like, yeah, that's interesting, except for the, the reality of, of this. Can you know that you're humble? Can you know that you're humble? Why, why not? Can you know that you're generous? Can you know that you're anything else, like you're gifted in any other area or that you're seeking to honor God in any other area? Why can't, why can't you know that you're humble? Moses knew that he was humble. Jesus knew that he was humble. Paul, Paul says that he was humble. Just because you know that you're humble doesn't mean that you're not humble. I think that there's a little bit of a fallacy in the American mindset that a humble person will not know that they're humble. But shouldn't we pursue humility? Shouldn't that be something that we want and that we intentionally try to, to be and to do? Isn't that something? Anyway, that was totally off the point. I didn't intend to make that point, but it just was interesting to me that Paul says in verse 19, I serve the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And basically, the first point in his message to the Christian people, to the leaders, is that um, Christians ought to live a life that can be replicated. You, you and I should be able to say that you can look at my life, you can inspect it, you can tear it apart, you can view it openly, honestly, and you should be able to say that that is a Christian life. Non-Christian people should be able to look at a Christian and say that's what it means to be a Christian. And we've gotten away from this idea. Paul said it um, in many occasions in his letters. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Do you remember that? And we look at those passages and say, Oh, I, I could never do that. And, and yet, that is exactly what Christ is calling us to do, is to live a honest, 
an authentic and openly Christian life in front of people so they can see what it looks like, what it means to be a Christian. Not perfect. Anybody have a perfect life? Here's what happened with Paul. He was a Pharisee, and the Pharisee uh, means that he was trying to live a perfect life, and he thought under the law that he was perfect, that he was doing everything exactly right. Then he encountered Jesus, and he um, understood grace. He encountered the grace-filled life. And he began to transition from this law and perfection and never make a mistake and do everything exactly the way it's supposed to be done to a pattern of understanding what it means to live in the grace of Jesus Christ openly before other people. Now, let me explain a grace culture. Um, the first thing that you have to understand about a grace culture is that it starts with an understanding biblically, theologically, of what a human being really is. A human being, every single human being on the earth, every person that you've ever known that has ever existed has infinite value to God. Every single one. Because of two things. One is they were created in the image of God. How he made man was in his image. He, he stamped the imago Dei on every single human being who's ever been born. Because they're made in God's image, then they have infinite value. Now, the other thing is that he also determined and he declared how valuable every person is by sending us an absolute standard through Jesus. He says, I declare to the world that every person is so valuable that, they, that Jesus Christ is willing to die for them. How much does God love every single person? Enough that he would be willing to die for them. So they're made in his image, and they're infinitely valued because of Jesus. Every person, okay? So we understand as Christians that everybody is, has that kind of value. Secondly, they also have this other thing about them, which is that they are um, sinners. They're fallen. They're, they, uh, they've made mistakes, or they, they were born in sin. doesn't matter. We're all fallen creatures. And so while we have this infinite value, cannot be changed or taken away, that, that doesn't, doesn't change based on what you do. God loves you that much. But we're sinners, and we need to be redeemed through Jesus Christ. We have to put our faith in him in order to be restored into a right relationship with God. So because everybody has value, and everybody has sinned, and everybody needs Jesus, then we're all in the same boat needing a constant pattern of grace. Not perfection, because we can't be perfect. Paul discovered that. But we all have this need to continue in this grace pattern. Okay, and the grace pattern is that um, I understand that I have sinned, and I understand that through Jesus I can be forgiven. And so, uh, let me calm down just a minute. In this church and in many churches, and I hope most churches, sin is um, talked about openly and honestly about how it destroys your life, how it uh, displeases God, how it is against God's character and his nature, how it's revealed biblically. Um, we're, we're not hopefully hesitant to declare what sin is. Um, we're not embarrassed about saying what sin is. We're not ashamed to declare sin. 
Um, we preach on it frequently, if not every week, um, because every single human being is separated from God because of sin. And we have to know and understand those things that separate us from God. The way back into a right relationship with God and right fellowship with God is through this grace pattern, this grace culture, that when I confess that sin, God is willing to forgive. God is more than willing. He wants to. He desires the right relationship with us. So we have to be conscious of the fact that I've messed up, and we have to be conscious of the reality that I can have a right relationship through this pattern of confessing my sin, accepting grace, and being forgiven, and having a value, and knowing that God loves to restore us, and knowing that in this pattern, what happens over time is that I get to grow and mature. And now I have, over time, a Christian character. And what people are looking at when they see a Christian person who is authentically and honestly living their life, not perfectly in front of everybody, but honestly in front of everybody, and saying, you can look at my life to see what a Christian is, is that they're seeing the grace culture, not the culture of perfection. And if we get that wrong, okay, in this church or any church, then what's going to happen is, is that we're going to begin to put up uh, walls and facades and masks and pretending and things that aren't real because we want people to love and accept us for something that, that doesn't really exist. And as soon as we crack and as soon as we mess up, we don't have a grace culture. If we, if we don't have a grace culture in this church, then people will just leave. Because I don't measure up to the perfection that we think that people want to see. And I can't be real about who I am and what I'm dealing with and the struggles that I have and the mistakes that I've made. I, I can't tell you about my past. I'm too ashamed of it. And we don't have a grace culture at that point. Now we have a law culture. And a law culture isn't going to restore anybody to a right relationship with God. You understand what's going on there? I believe that we have a grace culture in this church. I'm not saying it's perfect, but this is our understanding that everyone is valuable. Everyone is loved. Everyone has the, the ability and the potential to be forgiven, to be restored. But in order for us to be an example to each other and the world, we have to know that this is the pattern. It's a pattern of honesty. It's a pattern of repentance. We're not permissive about sin. We're, we're clear about what sin is. We want people to know what does keep us from a right relationship with God. We're clear about it, but we also are clear that the way back is not necessarily perfection. The way back is repentance and acceptance of Jesus Christ and his, salvation, his sacrifice on the cross. And that keeps us growing in our relationship with the Lord. Paul says we ought to be able to live these lives in front of people publicly and show them this is what it looks like. So he tells them that, follow my example, this is how I lived. And then he says, I'm going to skip down to verse 28, says, pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock, and he's talking to leaders, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, 
fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Okay, so his big warning. So first his big motivation or big um, encouragement is to live a life of grace. But his big warning is to be careful about false teaching. And he says it's going to come in two ways. One is from the outside. Fierce wolves coming in from the outside. So this, I'm not going to get into this too deeply, um, but the reality is that there are um, bad teachings out there. there. There are things that you're hearing on the radio, books that, that we are able to get. Um, there's so much being taught and spoken and preached and given and disseminated that you have to be conscious of what is good teaching, what's false teaching, what's coming from, from authentic teachers, what's coming from people who are just have motives to, to promote themselves. And not everything is of equal value. Do you know that? Okay, so I'm not going to get into all the details of that, but, but you should know that everything that you're hearing, reading, understanding, accepting, I mean, just weigh it through the Scripture and don't just accept it because they're successful or because you, you like the way they talk, um, that it must be good, okay? We've got to weigh it through what Scripture says. But here's what he says that I think is astounding. He says, this kind of thing from among your own selves. He's just talking to a small group of leaders. Some of you are going to become false teachers. That's what he says. Some of you are going to become false teachers. You're going to twist the word of God. How and why does this happen? And how can you be so certain that even a small group of people, that some of them are going to become false teachers? He goes down, and I think he gives us the, the way that this happens. Okay, He says in verse 33, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He says, uh, you yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities, to those who are with me, and all things I have shown you, that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said is more blessed to give than to receive. And what he's saying is, in not so many words, the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And what that really means is not even the love of money because what is money? What does money really represent? It's the love of self. It's the love of things that promote me, that are poured into me. And let me explain it this way. I look around at every single human being, every person in this room. You and I, and I'm included in this, every child is included in this, every Every old man, every old woman, okay, where every single one of us is included, we have a deep need, a deep desire for love and respect. It is so fundamental to, to who we are. We, we desire to be loved and respected. Now, we will talk about love and respect in terms of men kind of gravitate towards respect, women kind of gravitate towards love, but really, those two things are, that's just semantics, okay? Love and respect are basically the same coin. You just flip it over one side's love, the other side's respect, but it's the same sense of, of acceptance that we want. And you, you might be sitting here saying, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm not really 
in much need, right, in that Anybody there, like, you're just, like, so comfortable? Nobody's <laughs> willing to raise their hand. And, and I just, I know that this is the case for every single person. You and I desire love and respect. And what happens is that because we desire it so intensely and we need it so much that we are tempted to compromise our convictions, our faith, our belief, our understanding of God's word, we'll twist it in order to get favor from people. And as soon as you begin to pursue some kind of love or respect and you, you long for it from somebody and your values are, are going to be pulled and there's going to be a temptation to compromise what you believe to be true and right and moral and godly in order to keep this relationship, in order to get people to like you. And, and here's how it works in the, the big scheme of things. Why is it that so many celebrity pastors, megachurch pastors, huge ministry leaders are falling by the wayside right and left, one after the next, for sexual immorality, for embezzlement, for any number of abuse and control and, and uh, bullying. I mean, there's just so many things that are going on in, in these huge churches and these huge ministries. You're like, what, what's going on? I thought, you listen to some of their preaching, you say, they're right on, right? I mean, I've loved some of these guys preaching. Robbie Zacharias was one. I, I could listen to him all day long. I loved what he had to say. James McDonald's was one. I, I really... I, soaked it up. I could listen to him. He really fired me up sometimes. And there are others. I'm sure that there are people that you've liked, and then you found out, man, they're just, was it ever real? And here's what's happening, okay? I'm just going to explain this, and maybe I'm not quite right. I think I'm right, but here's what I believe is happening, is that somewhere along the way, somebody like that in these positions, they desire their own fame, they desire to be loved, to be respected, to be heard, to be famous, to be rich, to be powerful, to be in control, to have something successful. And they wanted favor so much that they compromised their character or the word. And they became false teachers in the process. I think most of them, a lot of them, um, were authentically trying to preach the gospel to begin with, like these leaders like what Paul says to them, it's not that they started out wrong, it's that they went wrong. And so when, this is why I tend to <laughs> be a little bit antagonistic towards what I call celebrity pastors. I think there's something almost inherently wrong with trying to promote your brand to the extent that you become nationally or internationally famous and just there's something about that that it's inherently leading you into a false perception of of your magnitude and it's not about you it's about jesus and if it's not about jesus then then you're tending to go the wrong way now what about you and me what about our because we're 
average people in an average community and, and doing average things. I mean, I mean, some of you are exceptional. I'm not saying that, but you're like, well, I'm not going to be internationally, you know, bestseller. I'm not going to be famous. I'm not going to be an actor. I'm not going to be whatever. The same issue is still true for us, that if you pursue love and respect and you desire to be favored from people and you're going to be a people pleaser, then I'm telling you that you're going to be tempted to compromise your values. You're going to be tempted to compromise your belief. You're going to be tempted to compromise the gospel. It's going to be really hard for you to hold on to what you know to be true and then your desire to be liked. And how you avoid that, I think, is embedded in the passage when it says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. On the first hand, here's what I know, that you don't need to worry about how much people like you and, and respect you and love you and, and receive you. You don't have to worry about that because you are loved infinitely by God. And that is your value, and no one else gets to determine what your value is. No human being gets to tell you what you're worth. God has already told you that. You're worth everything to him. He loves you. So you settle that in your mind that I am valued by God and that my relationship with him is where I find my acceptance and peace and joy, okay? But on the other hand, here's the other thing, is that he also calls us to give that away. Not to pursue it, not to pursue love, not to seek it out, not to seek respect, not to defend yourself. I have this tendency, and it's, I hate it within me, but I have a tendency to try to defend myself if I feel disrespected. Anybody else? I, you want to hurt me? Disrespect me. And that's a problem because that comes from a place of pride, not a place of humility. So in order to do the right thing, I have to give away respect. I have to respect and love other people. I have to intentionally do that to see God's value on them, his stamp of love on them, that, that he's made them in his image, and that he's died for them, and to continue to keep that in front of my eyes, that every single person has the potential to be redeemed and used by God in a way that is mind-blowing. So you give it away, you just keep giving it to people and without any expectation of getting it back. And this is, that's the trick. I'm going to tell you that is the trick because if you start thinking, I, I show that person so much love and I show that person so much respect and I got nothing in return, then what were your motives? It's more blessed to give than receive. You cannot wait or hope or expect to get anything back from it. You're doing it because it's the right thing to do for them and it's the right thing to do in your faith to protect you. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And I'm going to go full circle here, kind of. I don't know. Paul, he's going to continue to pursue to lay his life down in Jerusalem. He's, he's on that track. I could point to every scripture that talks about all the warnings and, and all the facts that, that he knew that this is what he was doing. But here is the, the bottom line, okay, with all of it, is that he was willing to serve because he had a God that deserved his life. And last week, how I concluded the message, if you were here, if you remember, was that we need to be serving. You remember that? 
we need to be serving. We need to be serving, hopefully in ways that are bringing us joy. We, we don't need to be miserable serving. I don't, I don't want you to do things that are just cause you to, to be stressed and, and anxious and, and I hate doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm supposed to. I mean, we need to find ways to serve that actually bring us life and joy. So finding our calling and finding the areas where, where we're gifted, that's what we need to be doing. Um, but I'm going to tell you on top of that, because I hear things from people as they say, yeah, that really you know, got to me. I, I think I need to be serving, and, and I think that's awesome. But what I know is that for some people who felt like that was an important call to action are still not committed to doing anything with it. And if you're going to really see the fruit of maturity in your life, if you're going to see how this grows you into a Christian character, then something's going to have to happen. You're going to have to intentionally seek to do something probably outside of what we call your comfort zone. And I don't even like to use that term because I, I think it's got too many things attached to it. But here's what you have to understand is that in order to find, um, no, in order to lay your life down, you're going to have to pursue laying it down in small ways um, on a daily basis. Because you can say, I'm going to lay my life down for the Lord. He can do whatever he wants with it. And then you can continue to do what you've always been doing. And you can continue to not change and not do anything different. So you're going to have to actually look for tangible, intentional ways to serve God. In ways that maybe you haven't discovered yet. You know, for me, when I was... Uh, trying to figure out what I was supposed to do in ministry, I tried a lot of different things. I tried teaching youth. I tried helping out with kids. I tried preaching. I tried, um, I didn't try music. Uh, <laughs> I tried a lot of different things in ministry, and um, unfortunately, nothing stuck. But uh, here I am anyway, so it's kind of a joke. But <laughs> what I discovered is that I had to explore some different areas. And uh, there were things that, that I did that I wasn't good at, and I, I knew that. There were other things that I just, God empowered me to do, and, and it's like, wow, that's awesome. And for some of you, I think some people are sitting back waiting for an invitation. Hey, would you help me with this? Hey, would you do that? And I'm telling you that those invitations don't always come. Some, sometimes we don't know the leaders, the people who are trying to put together teams, put together you know, ministries or volunteers, don't know that you are the person they need to ask. They don't know that. And they're not going to gravitate towards you. And it's no, no offense to you. And it's not because they don't like you. And it's not because you're not good at that thing. It's just they don't know. And so you're going to have to pursue doing something for the Lord. And, and my call to you, my encouragement to you, my challenge to you, whatever you want to call it, is that each and every person would look for 
an opportunity to lay their life down in some way, in a tangible way, to serve, to do something for the Lord. And it may not be within the context of the church. Okay, let's not make it too narrow. It might be in the context of your job. It might be in the context of your family. It might be in the context of a friend, another relationship that you have. But you just need to pursue laying your life down and saying, I'm going to serve other people in some way that's going to maybe make me uncomfortable. I might even have to sacrifice something to do it. But in doing it, Christ will be honored, and I'll be more blessed by giving than I am in receiving. Amen? Are you worn out? Bill's worn out. I feel like this is a moment that that we need to just make sure that we understand like what it is that we're we're after here. Okay? So I'm gonna ask the band to, to come up and we're gonna get ready to sing our invitation. I'm I'm really interested in, in seeing how God is going to use each and every person. I, I believe every person has a calling. Every person has a calling. Every person has a gift. Every person has a talent. Every person has something to offer. And that's, and we're just not tapping into that because for whatever reason we're we're sitting back thinking that I need to be ministered to or I need to be filled up or I need to be motivated or I need to be encouraged. And, and that's okay to a degree, but the disciples were not fully mature when Jesus started sending them out. You know that? But he said, you're ready enough you're ready enough at this point. And what's going to get you to the next point or the next level of maturity in your life is not that you're fully mature and then you go do something. It's that even before you really feel that you're ready, that you're going to start serving the Lord. You're going to start doing some things for God. And he's going to use that to grow you and mature you. It doesn't mean you're going to be a teacher. It doesn't mean you're going to stand up front and preach sermons. But something that maybe he's put on your heart to do for him. And right now, you need to get that locked in so that when tomorrow comes, you actually do that thing and not just wait till next week or the week after or maybe some other time when somebody will you know, give you that engraved invitation to do it. Like, you need to know that God is calling you to do that thing now. Okay? And I'm just going to ask you, okay, as we pray, if you're with your family, if you're with your wife, your husband, your kids, would you just get them together? Bring them close. Put your arm around them. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to silently, or if you feel like God is calling you to pray out loud, pray out loud, but as families, if you're with your family, and I know there are people that are single and not with their families, bow your head.
Um, but if, we, if you're with your family, get your family together as we pray, okay? Kids, you might need to get up and move. Go to your parents, go to your families. Husbands, if you need to go find your wife, your, your kids, your whoever, don't be embarrassed. Get up and move around. Let's bow our hearts together. Father, I am lifting up our church. God, we have a bunch of mature believers in this church, authentic people who love you, who know you, who who want more of you in their life. And yet, some haven't found their niche or they haven't stepped into their opportunity. They haven't discovered their calling. They haven't pursued their the work that you have for them to do for you for whatever reason. Maybe we haven't talked about it clearly enough. Maybe we haven't encouraged people enough and, and I take responsibility for that for my part. But God, today we're, we're asking that you would clarify with each and every heart here today what it is that you want, what it is that you are calling, what it is that you're you're clarifying in their heart what you want them to do for you. Something they need to lay down. It might be a sin they need to get rid of. It might be a, a bad behavior they need to, to lay down and say, I'm, I'm done with that thing. It might be um, a ministry they need to pick up or a person they need to serve or uh, something they've possessed they need to give away or something they, they need to help somebody with or something they need to speak up about or, or somebody they need to uh, talk to um, in their workplace or their friends or their school or wherever that they need to just share the gospel with them or, or tell them their testimony. I don't, I don't know what it is for everybody, but I know that you have something for everybody. So I pray by your spirit and by your power, would you reveal that? Would you make it known? And uh, would you help us even if we're nervous, even if we're uncomfortable, to be willing to say yes. And then commit to doing it. Make a commitment to say, I'm not just having a feeling right now, I'm, I'm going to determine to do what I'm called to do. And <laughs> I'm so excited to see what you're going to do with that, Lord. It may be more than we can handle. But you're going to use it for your glory, and we're ready for that. So glorify yourself. Continue to honor your name. Help us to do that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you maybe have clarified in your heart just in this last few moments like something God's really putting on your heart to do. Um, and what we just did was enough. What you just prayed was, was enough for you. Some of you, it wasn't. And you need another moment or another opportunity just to make that commitment somehow. That's what the altar is. It's just a place to say, God, I'm putting my stamp. I'm hoping for you to put your stamp, but I'm putting this stamp of this moment, this day, this time, that you did something and I'm agreeing with you 
And so if God is calling you, if he's clarified something to you, come to the altar, even if it's just for a second, and kneel for a moment and say yes to the Lord, and then get up and go back to your seat. But uh, we invite you to do that now as we sing. Let's stand and sing.